Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Joe Sheppy, CEO and co-founder of Solston, a digital experience optimization platform that's raised $39 million in funding. Joe, thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. No problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. So, I mean, who, who I am, that's that's always a, a tough one. But in the context of you know a founder... My whole career has really been spent on how do you actually design experiences in ways that are healthy for people. I started out my career working in actually as an orderly volunteering in a, in a ER in the United States, actually here in Minneapolis, and really noticed early on that a lot of the cases that were coming in, there's a lot of mental health issues, things related to that. And a few of the older surgeons there actually knew my grandpa, who was a doctor, and said, Joe, this is not what you want to do anymore. It's not like it used to be. We end up working with insurance companies more than actually helping people sometimes and really said, well, how do you get upstream from that? So in the same way that we think of architecture and how we design spaces that maybe, you know, higher ceilings, we know help people have better ideas, open spaces can be really healthy for things like lowering stress and stuff like that. So how do you do that digitally? And that set me down a path of being a user experience designer. So I was a UX director at big agencies like like McCann. I uh, was the head of UX at Big Fish Games. And then I worked in clinical neuropsychology as well. So I was an adventure-based psychotherapist. And all this comes together in pursuit of exploring, you know, what's the essence of creating incredible experiences for people, architecting experiences that are in line with the best version of, of a person and their potential, as well as helping with their mental health. And Solston was born out of that. Nice. Lots I want to dive deeper there on, but let's go back a little bit and talk a bit more about you before we do. So is there a specific founder that you really admire? And if so, who is in? What do you admire about them? Oh, for me, it's a pretty easy one. I think it's Walt Disney. And, you know, just the, the ability to have a dream and be a dreamer, but also be a doer. There's a lot of doers out there and a lot of people that can get stuff done. But if you lay train tracks in the wrong directions, things don't always go well. And I think, you know, Walt kind of going and saying, well, what could society really be like? And a lot of people, you know, said that you know, Disney is like this fantasy world that they created. And, and, you know, one of the things he said was, well, people do commerce here. People talk, people shop, people eat. They do everything we do in normal society. We just built this around people and play. And that crosses over a lot of with what we do at Solston. But I think there's a lot of founders that go and raise money and they create evolutions and those are needed. And I think they're important. But usually when you have some sort of thing, that's kind of a little bit of a revolution, you end up going up against a lot and Walt's story. And there's a couple of books that I really like about him. Um, one's called The Wisdom of Walt. It really, I think it's a great story of a founder who really saw beyond society as it is today and thought to himself, how can I leave something behind that enriches reality for everyone who would come after him? Nice. I love that. 
And outside of a Disney-related book, are there any other books that have had a major impact on you as a founder? And this can be a you know one of the classic business books or just a book that influenced how you view the world personally. Yeah, I mean, I think anything from Huxley is fantastic. You know, just the family he came from, the scientific minds. You know, most people are familiar with books like Brave New World, but have never read like Island or things like that. I think, you know, the odd of being a founder, you're dealing with ambiguity all the time. And there's, you can't go to business school and get all the outcomes or realities of how markets change and how realities shift. Yeah, there's some things like you can cookie cut and, and processes you can maybe adapt. But at the end of the day, I think having a really sound level of deductive reasoning and being able to combine a lot of different ideas and string them together and create optionality for yourself. I always kind of describe it as like, if you look at Michael Jordan with a basketball uh, and there's, you know, it's, he's up against some of the best people. If you go replay games, that guy had many different ways he could pivot and turn and still score. That's kind of like your job as a founder is to have those abilities. And I think people that teach you how to think like Huxley's very good at that. And you know, whether that's my favorite, there's other people that have their favorites. So that's a good one. And I mean, business books, it's just like, there's so many. It's like, where do you even start? I've really enjoyed more recently, like the Finding My Virginity book, Branson, or I was on a podcast with Mark Randolph. He wrote a book called That Will Never Work. I think a lot of people that are around today, what I like to do is I like to read their books and talk to them. So to me, the most value actually comes from like, for example, when I was on the podcast with Mark Randolph, who co-founded Netflix, uh, read his book, was on his podcast. And before the podcast, we sort of talked. And it's amazing when you have that person's book and are able to ask them some questions specific to your business, if you have the opportunity, it just, it provides this level of richness. So yeah, that's, I kind of would, would leave it at that for now, but I read a ton. So you know, no shortage of recommendations there if someone's looking for something specific. <laughs> nice. I love it. All right. Well, let's switch gears now and let's dive deeper into the company and, and the product line. So I, I see three different products there on the website. Could you just talk us through those different products? Sure. So the way to think of Solston holistically is basically it's it's your operating system for creating human-centered experiences. And so if we sort of break out our products, you can kind of think of it as early on, you know, maybe Microsoft had, you know, Microsoft Word and Microsoft Excel and all these different products, and that's your productivity suite. So our product traits, that was our our very first product. It's used for live experiences. So what it is able to do is through a combination of adaptive psychological assessment. So just think of that as like, the ACT, but it's understanding you psychologically and adaptively through that, along with basically all this enriched behavioral data that we procure and mostly through games. And I can get to why that's important in a bit, but through that, those two things and the telemetry between them, we're able to predict the psychology of a given audience and create different groups. So think of them as like, think alike groups or like-minded groups of people really going far beyond demographics and behavior. So you're actually able to understand your audience in real time and then personalize that experience to your audience in real time. So 
it works through an API. You're able to understand different traits, like maybe one part of your audience is really altruistic. So you want to give them things in your experience where they can help other people. And then all of a sudden, uh, our users like, whoa, that's completely, that's like going from, I don't know, MapQuest to Google Maps. It's like you, the experience is going far beyond the experiential expectations of your audience. Engagement changes, it's better. So we use traits to really allow companies to understand their audiences in real time and then create experiences that we know that they'll actually really love. So that's what traits is. Navigator, every time we measure a psychological profile, so most of this happens in games. Not many people know this, but 3 billion people in the world play games every single day. Only 4 billion people have a smart device. So when you put that into perspective, three-fourths of the global population that's using technology is a gamer. And that that number, it's just going up and up. It's like 100 million more people every year that are being added to that. So it's just how we're evolving from media interaction where we went from radio to television, television to, to games. Interactive entertainment, because it's two-way, is just from an engagement perspective and from an attention perspective, it's just far more enriching. Um, it's also healthier for you. Passive entertainment, uh, there's tons of studies if you ever want to go read all about it. You know, whether it's passively scrolling on your phone all the way to TV, it typically doesn't help when it comes to things like anxiety in the long run. That being said, when we go into games, we basically send out these psychological assessments. People triple opt into them. They're anonymized. So we never, never attach anything we do to that person's real identity. And then they're given a unique ID that they can control that from or opt out. But what happens as a part of that is you end up in a database and it's the largest psychological database in the world. So for example, when M&Ms was like, hey, I think we might want to you know, get into this gaming business, we can punch a button and say, you know, here's 40,000 people that said they liked M&Ms and here's the different psychological groups and here's their motivations and here's the type of features they like and here's the type of games they like and movies and IP and et cetera, et cetera. And then you can start designing this experience to them. And then we have testing services as a part of that. So as you're designing and you go, oh, you know, these, we're thinking of, you know, maybe these 10 features or, you know, updating this part of the experience might be really interesting. We're actually able to, when you do that sort of testing and we can do the testing for these companies as well, we can identify the features and which psychological groups they resonate with. So like, understanding the full potential, what's the biggest potential of your market. And what's so cool about that is you're basically not using your development costs as your research budget. You're kind of the job of an entrepreneur. You're actually getting to know where you're going in the future. And when you get there, you're able to actually greet and meet your ideal audience rather than you know the kind of, if you build it, they will come, which is not necessarily true. You're able to actually build it and know who's going to be arriving there. So what's cool about Navigator is most of the products that launch using it end up going on to being being successful, like over 95% of them. And then our third product is called Frequency. And we have that in beta right now. We're really taking our time to create the most intelligent digital asset manager in the world. So what it does is when you upload images into it, so think of like Dropbox, Google Drive, what it's doing is it's tagging what's in the images. Most of the image recognition software out there is built off of only like real photos or like real pictures. So when you upload like art or game images, it won't really know that 
that's a wizard and that's a box and that's a bag and that's a hat that doesn't it needs to be trained off of this stuff. So we've been training this for three years off of basically marketing images or art or and then realistic stuff too. So everything will get get tagged. And then what we're able to do is connect it to if you have a navigator audience, which is the psychological database that you can just query uh, or a traits audience, which is your customers. What we're able to do is you can upload any piece of art, image, marketing, ad, video, and it will actually predict how much that's going to resonate with a specific group in your audience. So effectively, you can use it for everything from doing marketability testing, looking at different marketing ads, optimizing those ads to on the, we work with most major game developers. They'll use it to create like in-game assets or art assets or skins or new guns or things like that. And they're actually able to know before, you know, putting a lot of effort into them, what's going to likely resonate with their, their audience. Wow. Super fascinating. And then is this just for gaming or do you have plans to take it outside of gaming at some point? Yeah. So we, you know, the game we're playing right now, if you think of Solston, it's kind of like early on Google was like, you know what, we're going to index the entire internet and we're going to make it searchable. What Solston is doing is indexing all of the behavior on the internet and making it basically predictable from a psychological perspective. So we're effectively building out the cognitive layer of the internet. In order to do that, you have to be in games because effectively you look at all of the behavior that can happen across the internet. The vast majority of that behavior is in games. Everything you can do outside of games, you can do in games. Everything you can do in games, jumping, running, swimming, all these things, these don't happen on Facebook. So what we do is effectively we're logging all this. We're using that to predict psychology from that anonymously, of course. And that being said, think of it as kind of like a, an NVIDIA, where NVIDIA was like, how do we really make the best graphics cards in the world? Well, let's go to the place where graphics cards are used the most, which is the gaming industry. So they did that, optimized it. So gaming's really our enabler. It's not the endpoint. Um, we have a healthcare part of the company um, where we're actually taking some real games through clinical trials. But when it comes to traits and navigator, we also, we were very specific for the last four years about who we worked with outside of gaming, like GoFundMe, Ancestry.com, people that we knew were going to be dedicated to building. They cared about human-centered experiences. They cared about audience. Those are the companies we worked with in the past in this space. But now we have a fun list that we're rolling it out for every vertical outside of gaming over the next year here, starting with with groups in the healthcare side of things, but we're also in like just general apps, fast moving consumer goods. So if you have a human as a customer, you probably should be using Solston. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So a pretty large target uh, market for you then. Yeah. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And what would you say you've gotten right in terms of your go-to-market? You know, it sounds like you've gained a lot of traction. You've captured the trust and attention of big companies. What have you gotten right? Yeah, our first customer was Hasbro, which was kind of fun 
that was, I mean, that was off of a prototype and, you know, there was no proof of concept. Everything from the start was paid for. And if I look back, what are all the things that we did, you know, pre-pandemic, because we started this in 2018, so it's about five years old now. And step-by-step, how did we get to this point? I think it's an extreme level of focus, and I know that's cliche, but we had some amazing opportunities outside of gaming because actually there's lot bigger budgets outside of gaming. And this the use cases that we run things for are much more sensical in a lot of ways. Like this was a lot of this was new to the gaming industry when when we really stepped in. And a lot of it was, you know, gaming companies going, hey, we already do all this. And then using Solston and going, wait, we don't do any of this. But really understanding where our moat needed to be and our moat like we had competitors early on who were in gaming and also like bigger companies, not going to name names, who tried to buy us out or like copy some of the stuff we were doing and and go to games. And I think really knowing your beachhead market and just just putting being the horse with the blinders on your eyes and just getting so good at serving that audience and that space and creating and just optimizing around learning. It's like, I do some angel investing too. And all the founders say like, well, my company didn't work because I didn't get investment. And like, you know, our competitor got investment and I'm like, well, were they, you know, are they serial entrepreneurs? Have they had exits before? Oh yeah. Like, and it's like, that's not fair. It's like, well, that's kind of how life works. And you're in your first one and, you know, you got to make sure that you're really showing the value and those proof points. And I think that's something we did from early on too. Like people have always paid for Solston. They have paid quite a bit. I think if you're in the B2B space like us, that gave us a lot of optionality. We also always played to our strengths. Like between my co-founder and I, legally we're able to operate in the US and Europe. So we just always put job descriptions up. That's how we ended up in Berlin was who are the best people that we can find that are, you know, in our even from a space perspective. And that's why we moved the t- company, we started it in Stockholm in the same little place where Spotify and, and King, who makes Candy Crush, we started it in the same little kind of, I guess I don't want to say crappy, but it, yeah, it was, it was cool. It, it had a lot of character. So we started in that same community and we moved it to Berlin because we just focused on talent and culture fit. I know culture fit seems ambiguous, but here's maybe something that's, that's interesting because we are, we do a lot of psychometrics. We have our employees, we, we you know it's optional, but when people would get hired, they take our own psychometric assessments. And we started tracking the the traits of people that did really well at Solston. For example, our engineering team, people with high levels of straightforwardness tended to be always our best engineers. So we started basically looking for what are the, the trait profiles that we see, you know, having a lot of success at Solston. And what actually comes from that is an incredible amount of of diversity, which is also kind of cool. Like we're from over 30 different countries now. So when you optimize around attributes, it sort of opens a lot of doors and it, it reduces a lot of bias actually. Cause I think a lot of founders go, well, I'm looking for culture fit. And what they're really saying is like, I'm looking for more people like me. And when you're able to focus on those attributes from a cultural perspective, you can really start to understand who's going to grow and be really, really effective within the business. I actually wrote a, a Harvard Business Review article a bit ago 
where I did this at my, it was my co-founder's past company. And we organized their teams around kind of psychological groupings. And they ended up spinning out four startups. I think two have had exits already. So really successful compared to like your, your normal data. But I think those are like some of the things that, that we've done well. Um, there's a lot we haven't, and maybe that's it too. The stuff we haven't done well, I think one of the things that's interesting about if you meet people at Solston, we really put an emphasis on psychological and emotional resilience and learning. And why I say that is those two things are tied together. Back when I was a, a psychotherapist, you, you know, I'd have some people who would come to me and say, I wish I had more psychological safety in the workplace. And there's no shortage of articles talking about psychological safety. What they don't actually talk about is workplaces that have the highest levels of psychological safety actually are teams that have the highest levels of emotional resilience. It makes sense. Like if you're emotionally resilient, you're much less triggered. Like when I was a therapist, I used to tell people like, you can't be triggered if you're not loaded. So if you're loaded, you know, you got to figure that out first. And if you, you build a team off of developing emotional resilience and learning those two things, I also, this is something like, I think Bezos said a while ago, and I'm going to paraphrase it. He said something like, you know, a lot of people when they came to Amazon, as we started succeeding, they said, you know, they kind of acted like they had to be right a lot because a lot of the senior executives were right a lot. And it gave the wrong impression because if you actually looked at why early on, a lot of those people were right more often than not is because throughout their entire career, they had been willing to be wrong more. And embedding that from a cultural perspective, the kind of the combination of resilience and the willingness to be wrong, because ultimately I think if you have a very crystal clear vision, which with Solson has, and it's been pretty big, when you have that, and then you allow for a culture that's willing to be wrong, you actually just create a culture that is going to learn the fastest. And then the off gas of that is you end up being right more than the people who are trying to be right and not be learners. And to be a really good learner requires resilience. So those are, I think, so those are some of our, our secret sauces. Nice. That's super interesting and, and really good insights, I think, for our listeners. Now, if we just look at this space in general, how does traits compare to something like the like Myers-Briggs assessments that seem to have been around forever? Sure. Well, you know, I think we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, and if you look at kind of clinical psychology as a whole, cognitive psychology really didn't start coming to fruition until the 1960s. It wasn't that before 1960, we didn't believe people had brains and couldn't think. It was just that we didn't know how to measure any of this stuff. So the 1960s was sort of the onset of when questionnaires and psychological assessments were born. And the Myers-Briggs was, I think, a really interesting off-gas of that early on related to, you know, your 16 personality types and all this kind of stuff. One of the challenges is with the Myers-Briggs, so it's better than a flip of a coin, but it might as well be closer to astrology. And I know there's some people that are probably going to be really mad I said that. But the reality is from a scientific perspective, we can't do really good test, retest, whether it's astrology or the Myers-Briggs. Reliability, it's called your Chromebox Alpha is what we use to calculate it. And what all that is, is in simple terms, if I measure your personality type for the Myers-Briggs now, and if I measure it in a year from now, it's going to change. And it does, it's not for all people. 
But the questions that make up the Myers-Briggs and the types that are there, they're not really super reliable. Whereas like maybe shift gears and talk about, you know, something like the MMPI, which is used in clinical psychology to diagnose and look at, you know, everything from personality disorders to depression, anxiety, et cetera. In the clinical world, our reliability scores need to be above 0.7 at the very lowest, but a lot of these tests are like 0.85, sometimes 0.9, which is, you know, it's not great. It's better than nothing, but it's basically saying that, you know, if we retested, you know, now and in two weeks and then two weeks after that, we'd still get about 85% of the time, the same results for depression. A lot of the stuff from Myers-Briggs is like in the 60%. So, you know, it's it's better than a flip of a coin. And that's why people kind of see it and they go, yeah, I can see that, but it's not good enough. And it's definitely not good enough to be able to predict any sort of psychology from if you're playing the game and not using questionnaires, because you need to use those as, as baselines. And when it comes to the Myers-Briggs in particular, you can't use that as a clinician. So like when I was doing clinical psychology and if we wanted to look at personality, we would send something out like the, it's called the NEOPIR. It's if you've heard of OCEAN or the OCEAN model, like the big five. So it's a clinical version of that. So like that's what we would use more likely, or there's another tool that's a little bit more clinical called the PAI that looks at personality as well. So these tools are a little bit more clinical. The problem with all these tools, though, is they're static. So if you think of like, we develop the 10 best questions to measure extroversion, it's going to be the 10 best questions based off of a large population where what we do at Solston, we actually do adaptive testing. So we're able to amass a really big item bank. And it's like, if you started taking one of our questionnaires, Brett, it would actually be delivering you the questions that are the most reliable and valid for you to measure something like extroversion. And it's learning about you as you're taking it. So what that means is you're going to end up with like, so let's say we got your profile, you're going to end up with a lot of, of these traits that have really high levels of, of reliability or validity. So Myers-Briggs, I think they did a lot. There's an interesting book called The Personality Brokers. If anyone's in, like back the books. Um, if they're interested in the history of the Myers-Briggs and what it's about, you can check it out. But yeah, it's definitely a relic of the past at this point. <laughs> Makes sense. And I love diving deep into different industries. So that book sounds like a, a perfect book to read. Yeah. Now to go back a little bit, or maybe we should have done this at the start of the call. What's experience mean to you? Like, how do you define experience? Yeah. So as human beings, we have these five senses. And those are the things that we experience reality through. Of those senses, our vision, um, our occipital lobe is about 30% of your brain, and which is dedicated solely to vision. So when people say, I'm a visual person, um, you might as well just say, well, that's redundant because being a person means you're visual as long as you are, you know, obviously not, not blind or impaired visually, which in that case, it's really interesting because the parts of your your brain, like your olfactory parts of your brain or other, other parts that are dedicated towards like, um, you know, hearing, they're going to take over parts of that homunculus of, of your brain to become more perceptive, which our brain is so adaptive, it's incredible. But when it comes to experience, most of us, you know, we experience reality through what we see. 
And so when we think of experience at Solston, that's part of why we work in games is you're still really limited to you know, your experience of reality if it's just visual. It's why when you watch surfing on a TV versus when you do it in real life, it's so different and everything from biochemically to the memories you create. And I think that's kind of an interesting next step is, is thinking of experience through memory. So games, part of why, you know, we are in this sort of attention economy and why a lot of people are going into games is people want deeper levels of experience. It's the same reason why people went from the radio to black and white TV to colored TV. Nick Swartzen, one of my favorite comedians, he has this joke where he's like, yeah, I have this friend who's like, uh, he's just like that pissed off, like movie critic who you can't show him a movie that he's not like displeased with, you know, like new whatever comes out. And he's like, yeah, it sucked. And he's like, can you imagine if we played like Transformers in a black and white theater, you know, in the 1930s, like people would be losing it. They'd be like calling emergency, you know, they'd be all over the place. And it's our experience that we have in life, you know, in terms of, if you look at fundamental human motivations, one of them is, is flow. More good books, you know, that's a the pretty obvious one. But if, you know, Mile, Mahali, Sikhsemihali, I think I, I can never pronounce his name properly, but flow, the kind of the godfather of flow. That's just, it's a core motivator for human beings. And it's a lot of when it gets triggered is when our challenge is just slightly higher than our skill level. And if you look at people's disposition to flow, so their ability to enter deeper levels of flow states, when you add in sound, touch, smell, the more that you add in from a experiential, from a sensorial perspective, the more likely you can, you know, and basically create a flow state. So that's part of why things like surfing are able to really induce flow so well, because it's just so immersive. There's, there's water and waves and ocean and all these smells and sense your senses are just firing on all cylinders and you really kind of end up in that zone. And so for us, experience is the culmination of, of all those things and how we enable human beings. So it's not just the things happening. It's two things beyond that. It's how we remember them. So that's all we are as people is the moment we're in and the collection of memories from the past moments. And oftentimes, if you think of the most memorable moments in your life, they're tied to two things. One is flow. They're tied to, you know, immersive realities where your, your senses are, your touch, smell, sight, all these things are, are being you know, triggered and that in conjunction with your values. If you look at like, just write down your top five peak experiences and then write the values that were there, whether you value nature or family or creativity or whatever you value, and you'll start to see a pattern across all of your peak experiences. So it seems that some of our, our aspects of personality, which could include values we have combined with those experiences, they really boil down to, you know, what our peak experiences are. And then those are the things we end up remembering and those memories end up being our life. And so experience kind of wraps all into that. And at the end of it, it's also something that we believe people should be the driver of. So that's part of why Solston exists is how do we put you in the driver's seat of your experience 
rather than, you know, we don't think Instagram, for example, should be really driving your experience. It should be the best version of yourself being able to interact with technology in a way where you're in control, where you can opt in or opt out, but kind of turn on sort of a Google Maps versus a MapQuest and being able to pilot your experience, whether it be digital or, or not. Amazing. Love that. Now, Joe, we're getting close to being up on time here. So I want to end just with one final question. And that question is, what's the future of the company look like? Let's paint a picture of what it looks like maybe three to five years from today. Sure. So we already work with pretty much every major gaming company, but what you're going to see there, I think as a consumer is one of the realities is a lot of games that you you log into and likely experience as there's going to be the ability to opt in through your Solston ID and control whether that experience personalizes to you or not. Everything we learn in healthcare, we're mapping back to our overall experience. So let's say if we see somebody who's really open and has high extroversion and is altruistic, and we see specific features that actually improve anxiety for them, decrease depression, et cetera, these are the features that are going to be more likely to get surfaced. So how do you actually, if you think of your device right now and ask yourself, are you the best version of yourself when you're on your device? I know I'm probably not. I'm a much better version of myself when I'm with friends and outside and in nature. But what's going to happen is the technology that we're, we're leveraging, you know, if we get everything right in gaming and if we keep doing things the right way, what we're going to see is the technology we use is going to start to feel a lot more like Google Maps versus MapQuest. And from a company perspective, if you have a consumer-facing product and are looking to understand your audience, it's our hope that you would put your trust in us to understand your audience. And I think the reality is best quoted there by, there's a few pretty visionary people that we get to work with. Like one used to be the the head of Call of Duty, which is a pretty popular game. And one of the quotes that, that was said there was, basically in three or four years from now, like Solson's an advantage right now if you use it, but people, consumers, experiential expectations are changing and evolving and getting better and better and better that the companies that don't use Solston within the next two to three years are going to be at a major disadvantage. And your audience and understanding your audience, yeah, it's going to be basically what you have to do. It's not going to be a nice to have. And because we're in real time, basically measuring a pool of 3 billion people, there's no way to get closer to the pulse of understanding markets or understanding your audience better than Solston. Like there's, we've we worked with a few like outside of gaming fortune 500s who have just flat out said like, you guys know way more about our customers than we ever could imagine. Like our Nielsen report or Gardner report is like, it feels like it's, we just stepped, you know, years ahead um, when it comes to understanding our audience and being able to create experiences for them. So we'll see that. And the other part is, you know, we're going through clinical trials coming up here. And one of our hopes is that when people are in the hospital, it's no longer seven hours of psychological assessments to understand if you have ADHD or schizophrenia or anything like that. Um, maybe you can just play Angry Birds. So, you know, on that, that being said, moving forward, the science of human understanding. And, you know, we're, we're really here. We're a mental health company with a gaming cape on, and we're using all this stuff to how do we 
basically don't, you know, we're not here to gamify health. We're here to healthify gaming, basically, and really bring what is engaging naturally and play. And I think in, in five years, people will look back and go, you know, that was common sense that games and healthcare were best friends from the start. But right now, I don't think that's that's obvious to everyone. So making that obvious should, you know, if we do everything right, that'll be something that happens in five years from now. Amazing. Joe, I would love to keep you on and, and keep asking you another 20 or 30 questions here, but we are up on time. So we're going to have to wrap. Before we wrap up, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where's the best place for them to go? Right now, it would probably be to go to our website and shoot us an email. And yeah, I think you can follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn is where we're the most active. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, educate myself and our audience, and really share this vision. This is all super exciting. I've learned a lot and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. Thanks, Brett. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 